0: The Apostle Paul, St. Paul, if you come from different faith backgrounds, wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, He didn't write them as books, he wrote them as letters to churches. There was a church in a town called Colossae, and here's what he said to that church. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We live in a world where peace does not rule in many hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Peace. You and I are called to peace. But so much of our lives, as we, we make our way through this series on fear, so much of our lives get entangled up in fear and worry and anxiety. So the question this morning as we kind of get, get, get rolling is, how are we, how are you at putting on peace? And so in order maybe to give you a, a feel for that, I'm going to give you a little uh, assessment A little quiz, so if you are a type A person, you might wanna get a pen and paper out. And if you're not, then kinda just listen to the questions and register your score in your mind a little bit. There's a uh, Harvard professor, a Christian guy by the name of Ed Hollowell, and he developed this worry assessment. It's pretty good. So uh, I'm gonna gonna ask you a bunch of questions, and then I want you either in your mind or on a piece of paper to rate yourself uh, from a zero to a three. A zero would mean rarely at all, almost it's no issue for you at all. A one would mean sometimes, a two means often, and a three means almost every day. Everybody with me? All right, so here we go. Question number one. Question number one, do you wish you worried less? Zero, you know, not at all, one, sometimes two, often three every day. Number two, do worries sometimes pop into your mind and take over your thinking like annoying gnats? Does that happen in your mind? All of a sudden, worry strikes. Question three. Here's an interesting one. Do you find compliments and or reassurances hard to take? Do you find compliments and or reassurances hard to take? Question four. Are you more concerned than you wish you were with what others think of you? Are you more concerned than you wish you were with, other, than with what others think of you? Question five. This is a really interesting one from a scientific perspective. How much do you procrastinate? It's Procrastination is often a sign of worry. That's why it's on the list. How, how much do you procrastinate? Zero, one, two, or three? Question number six. I got three more for you. Question number six. Do you avoid confrontations? Do you avoid confrontations? Question number seven is a little longer. It's kind of an interesting question, so stick with me through this. Do you ever feel compelled to worry that a certain bad thing might happen such as a business deal falling through or your your child not getting picked up, uh, picked for the team or your, your financial situation collapsing? Do you feel compelled to worry that a certain bad thing might happen almost out of a supernatural feeling that if you don't worry about it, the bad thing will happen? But if you do worry about it, your worrying might actually prevent the negative outcome from happening. Does that make sense? Almost like a superstitious thing there. Last question for all, all of you worriers, based your, you know, you're hitting twos and threes, this one will make sense. Last question is this. Are you worried right now about your score on this quiz? <laughs> now, I'm not going to make you total it up. I'm not going to give you the categories. But it, it is actually, actually a Harvard diagnostic tool about how deep worry is penetrating into your, your hearts. Suffice it to say that fear, worry, and anxiety are, by most researchers' calculations, at record levels, unparalleled levels in our culture. And as I told you last week, anxiety is now reaching epidemic um, levels. Now, this is not new news to the one whose name we gather in this morning. Jesus was very well aware that worry was going to be a big issue for us. If you get nothing else out of this series over these bunch of weeks, please get this out of it. The number one command by Jesus Christ, more than any other command, it was not to love him. It was not to love God. It was not to love one another. It didn't have anything to do with behavioral changes. It went to a much deeper issue. It went to a heart issue. The number one command of Jesus by far was do not Fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Now, it's not just Jesus' words. The Scripture is so replete with warnings about this because of what fear does to us. Lloyd Ogilvie noted that there are 366 fear not verses in the Bible, one for every day of the year, including one for leap year. That's how serious it is. It was an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, Give or take 800 years. We've been talking about this famous story where Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples and the storms, of, uh, the storms in their lives kick up, the storms in our lives kick up. And if you remember the story, and we'll talk about it again in a few minutes, you know, the, the, the boat runs into the storm and the waters rise and they start to come over the boat. Now, about 800 years before, Isaiah prophesied something like this. And if you know the way that these boys, you know, Peter, James, and John, the way they were raised, they should have known Isaiah's words. They likely had some portion of them memorized. Here's what Isaiah told God's people. Do not fear, because I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. we just sang, I am a child of God. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Funny, they knew that probably. But something happened. There's something that happens with fear, what it does to our belief in God, what it it does to our belief about God. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. The storms in our lives, anybody got anybody run into some storms? The storms in our lives are circumstances, as difficult as they may be, this is really, okay, this is so good, it's very exciting, and you're going to be, if you're like me, kind of like a... Bible geek on these kind of things. like, God, this is brilliant. It's not my work, so it's not, I can say it's brilliant. It's amazing, okay? You'll be able to kind of put this filter over a lot of things in your life. The storms are not our problem. Jesus guarantees the storms. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. See, we're often tempted to think that worrying is caused by the problem. And so if God wants me to worry less, then he should just give me less problems. But worry doesn't work that way. This Harvard researcher I told you about, he's a Christian guy, okay, a Christian guy named Ed Hollowell. And he came up with an equation, so brilliant. And it really does determine the worry factor in anybody's life, okay? So here it is, you might wanna write it down because I'm telling you, you can sense this. When you start to fear or feel anxiety, look to this equation and go, what's going on here and how can I deal with this, okay? Here's the equation. An increased sense of vulnerability And a decreased sense of power leads to or equals an increased sense of worry. As you move those variables around in your life, in your storms, with your circumstances, that is what's going to cause the worry. It's not the problem. As you you feel an increased sense of of vulnerability, that you might be struck down, uh, if that gets coupled with a decreased sense of power or whatever strength is available to you, that is what increases your worry. Now... Worry is not a direct product of my circumstance. Worry is a direct product of my beliefs about how vulnerable I am and how much power I have access to. That's pretty good. That'll preach as they used to say. (laughs) This equation explains why people who have a lot of circumstances that look pretty good actually worry more than those who seem to have more problems. That's why people who have a lot of money sometimes worry more about it than people who have very little. I have now spent months in the Guatemala City garbage dump. It smells of a lot of things. Worry is not one of them. We reek of worry. This is why there are people who have climbed really high on the corporate ladder, but but they're scared all the time that they're going to fall. They sometimes carry more worry about their work life than folks at much more menial jobs. Because it's not the problem that that causes the worry. This is why the diagnosis, as terrible as the doctor might might make it seem, as long as he tells me I have access to a cure, I don't worry. Worry results from a heightened sense of vulnerability, a diminished sense of strength. Let's go back to the story. Uh, Jesus... In the first boat ride, he's curing people. He's doing all kinds of miracles. And the disciples are following him. And they're going, I'm with him. He's my boy. We them boys. I can hear him walking down the thing. I'm with that guy. And it gives them this incredible sense of power. And so Jesus gets in the boat. You know the story. And they get in the boat with him. They're riding with the baddest guy in town. Nothing could touch them vulnerability they had no vulnerability they had just seen what Jesus had done they knew they had access to great power but the storm kicked up and the storm kicks up and Jesus takes a nap now look at the equation how is Jesus able to take a nap he has no sense of increased vulnerability and he's quite aware of the power that he has Jesus takes a nap the boat starts getting tossed around Jesus seems disinterested in their plight, at least to the disciples. So for the disciples, up goes the vulnerability, down goes the perceived power, and in creeps fear and all of the cancer that comes with it. I read this week of someone who was dealing with just this equation when it came to a work conversation, a tough conversation he was going to have to have with his boss at the office. His boss was very intimidating. And so he was talking with his wife. His wife was kind of sarcastic. He was talking with his wife about this, and she was trying to get him to man up a little bit. And and he said, you know, he goes, man, just when I think about this, my my palms start getting all wet. They start getting sweaty. She kind of looked at him. and About an hour later, he came back, and he said, he goes, you know, and when I think about doing this, my mouth is getting really dry. And her her advice to him was, well, then why don't you just lick your palms? (laughs) See, I knew it would kill in second service. Those first service people don't understand when they're missing it. Right? See? The, center, the people in the back, the, the, the volunteers now. Uh, I could go on and on about fear. I could go on and on about this, man. We could be up here because this is really an issue for us. It eats away at our trust in God. It does a lot of things, and I've talked about them over the, over the weeks. But I, but, but I want to I talk today about one last thing I want you to understand about fear, what it does to you, what it will cost you. And I want to encourage you to take a very real step, a material step in terms of conquering it. So let's go back to our story. Second boat ride. Matthew chapter 14, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. I told you a few weeks ago, the first time Jesus got in the boat and the disciples got in the boat with him, this time Jesus has to make the disciples get in the boat. Why? Because they had been on the boat before with Jesus out in that lake, and they weren't looking for a return engagement. But Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them and on the other side. You can almost see them going, you're not getting in with us? No, go. Go. So, after he dismissed them, he went on the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with a few pieces of bread and fish. Disciples are feeling pretty good again. Vulnerability starting to go down, power going up. I'm with him. And so, Jesus tells them to get in the boat. They get in the boat. Things are going okay, but in a scene that should have been quite familiar, here comes the storm. It's kind of interesting, right? In a scene that should be familiar to us, here comes the storm. Back to our fear equation, a storm rolls in, their vulnerability goes up, Jesus is nowhere to be seen, so their understanding of his access to his power goes down, and, and right where they meet, fear begins to do what it always does. And this is our life. Life comes with storms. Man, I mean, I mean, life comes with storms. Some of us get more than our share. The fallen world we live in, it whips up some serious turbulence, health crises, economic struggles, job loss, divorces, unwanted invoices in the mail, cancer cells uh, on the report. I mean, they all howl down on us too. Now Peter and the crew, They knew they were in trouble. The boat was now, according to Matthew, out in the middle of the sea, and the wind was against it. You ever just feel like you've just been caught in a season where the wind is just against it? Like, I can't believe, you know, uh, David asks it in the scriptures, but I've asked it, like, when is enough enough, God? When's enough? When's enough enough? I just feel like the wind, like I'm, I'm, I'm running into a wind. So here's what Matthew says. He says, shortly before dawn, about nine hours later, this doesn't happen immediately, the storm rages for some time. About nine hours later, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now that's a pretty cool story. Most of us know that story. Let me introduce you to how Mark describes the event. This is just so cool, okay? This is just so cool. I I, I had never noticed it before. I'm wondering if you have. Mark describes it this way. He says, seeing them straining at the oars because the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. <laughs> you ever read that? And like, we would just read this, you know, and you're like, uh-huh. And then you just stop there. Wait, what? It's because I'm reading it thinking he's coming to get them, and the scripture seems to indicate, no, he's actually going to walk right by. Like, see, Jesus can be very frustrating. <laughs> I mean, is this like some kind of a cosmic race to the other side? Is he trying to impress them with his, his water-walking abilities? What, this is their moment of fear. What do you mean he intends to pass them by? There's a guy named David Garland. He, he points out that this verb here, it, when he discusses passing by, is a verb in the Greek. It's perere komai. It means to pass by. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as a technical term. Now, stick with me on this because this is very cool. It's used as a technical term to to refer to theophany. What is theophany? Theophany is a defining moment when God makes striking and temporary appearances in the earthly realm to a select individual or group for the purpose of communicating a message. So, if you know the scriptures, this is not unusual. God put Moses in a cleft in a rock so Moses could see, quote, while my glory passes by. The Lord passed before him. God told Elijah, go stand on the mountain, quote, for the Lord is about to pass by. There's a pattern in these stories. In each of them, God is trying to get people's attention through a burning bush or a howling wind or a driving storm or or by walking on water. With each person, God's going to call them to do something extraordinary. Lead your people out of of Egypt. Come take a step out of that boat. In each, each situation, the person that God called felt very afraid. But every time the people said yes to their calling, they experienced the power of God in their lives. So when Jesus comes to the disciples on the water, intending to pass them by, he's not doing magic tricks. He's revealing his divine presence and his power, and he's providing for them a call for their lives. It was a divine moment that was about to happen. And the questions for the disciples were, would fear, like it does for so many of us, would fear keep us from answering the call of God in our lives because the Lord God was about to come by. Back to the story. So when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they're terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Max Lucado described the scene, he he just puts it so pointly, he says, you know, he says, they didn't expect Jesus to come to them this way in a storm. <coughs> Neither did we. If we're honest, we expect Jesus in the form of a peaceful hymn, or an Easter Sunday, or a church retreat. We expect to find Jesus in morning devotions and and potluck suppers and and meditations. You see, we think we'll find Jesus within the happy marriage and and, and with the the bouncing babies. We never expect to see him in the middle of the storm. We never expect to find him walking us through a a birth defect or a a death or a lawsuit or speaking to us in a prison or a, a psych ward. We never expected to see him in a storm, but it's in storms where he does his best work because that's when he finally has our attention. And so into this storm, my storm, your storm, here's what Jesus speaks. Matthew chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Dale Bruner notes that right in the middle of this story is the word that has the power to still the storms of fear in troubled people. Courage, I am, don't be afraid. I've got to show you something that, again, is so fascinating about the scriptures here. The English translation usually adds a word not found in the Greek. That's why when you read it in your Bibles at home, it says, I am he or it is I. But Matthew uses the Greek version of of the great, mysterious, self-revealed name of God, I am. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. God to Moses in the burning bush. Tell the people I am sent you. To Abraham in the desert. I am the Lord. To the Israelites in the desert. I am he. Jesus to to, to the, the crowds. Before Moses was. I am. To the Israelites in the desert. I am he. There is no God beside me. Bruner says, This is no ordinary hello in the water. It is the divine Lord addressing a needy church. The gospel of the story is in this great address. Jesus attends for his fear prone followers to understand that the earth is in the hands of an infinite Lord whose character and competence can be trusted. It's like this, boys, he says Courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Is anyone in control of the winds? I am. Is anybody aware of what's happening down here? I am. Is anybody coming to help? I am. I am. Courage. Don't be afraid. One writer put it this way, I strongly believe that the way we live is a consequence of the size of our God. The problem many of us have is that our God is too small. We're not convinced that we're absolutely safe in the hands of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present God. When we wake up in the morning, what happens when we live with a small God complex? We live in a constant state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on us. Our mood will be governed by our circumstances. Listen to what he concluded. I love this. We will live in a universe that leaves us deeply vulnerable. When you start to think that your God is not the I am God that holds everything in his hand, vulnerability goes up. Fear through the roof. When we have a chance to share our faith, if we don't believe in a big God, we shrink back. What if we're rejected or we can't find the right words because it all depends on us? We can't be generous because our financial security, it all depends on us. When we need to say something maybe strong or challenging to somebody, well, we pull our punches a little bit because we're afraid that they might reject us. We're not really confident in God's acceptance of us. If we have a temptation maybe to speak deceitful words, to avoid pain, well, we probably do it. When the opportunity comes along to take credit for something at work that doesn't belong to us, we do it because we don't trust in a big God who sees in secret and who one day gives rewards. If somebody gets mad at us or disapproves, we get all twisted up in knots because we don't have the security of a knowing God, a giant God that is watching out for us. When human beings shrink God, this is from last week too, when he becomes, when you take the infinite and make it finite, we begin to offer prayer without faith, work without passion, service without joy, suffering without hope, And it results in fear and retreat and loss of vision and failure to persevere. And into all of that, Jesus says, I am. I control the storms. And my guess, my guess is that just at that moment, the scene is starting to sound familiar. Peter is going, wait a minute, we've been here once before. Oh yeah, I remember what he said when he woke up the last time on the boat. And how about that, I can kind of remember, remember there was a prophet Isaiah, he said something about how I shouldn't be afraid here. And so Peter starts to put two and two together, you might think, and and in Matthew 14, 28, he says, Lord, he says, if it's you, tell me to come to you out on the water. Now, John Ortberg, in a profound book, if you have not read it, it's got to be a top 20 Kind of classic book. In his profound book, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat, he puts it this way. Peter blurted out to the water walker, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Why does he include that detail? Why doesn't Peter just jump into the water? I think it's for a very important reason. This is so good, because this is not just a story about risk-taking. It's a story about obedience. That means we have to discern... What's an authentic call from God in our lives, and what is just simply foolish impulse on our part? Now, it's very hard sometimes to discern the call of God, what God is calling us to, and what the pizza from last night is saying to me. Um, And actually, we didn't schedule it this way, but actually at after hours tonight, 6.15 to 7.45 at the public house, this is what we're talking about. How do you discern the call of God? How do I know if it's me that's doing this or how do I check it? Uh, John says, test the spirits. And we're going to talk about that at After Hours tonight. So I won't get into it now, but Matthew is not glorifying risk-taking for its own sake. Jesus isn't looking for, you know, bungee jumping, hand gliding, day trading, tornado chaser Guys. Water walking isn't something that Peter did to show off, to show how strong in faith he was. He didn't do it for for recreational purposes. It isn't a story about extreme sports. It's a story about extreme discipleship. This means that before Peter gets out of the boat, he has to make sure Jesus thinks it's a good idea. And so he asks for some clarity. If it's you, command me. You almost can picture Jesus going, I think he gets it. I think he might get it. And Peter has enough faith somehow to believe that he too could share in the adventure. He decides he wants to to become part of history's original water walk. And he says, Jesus, command me to come. And here's what I love. This is so good. In overcoming his fear to find his purpose, Peter did not ask Jesus for a promise. In overcoming his fear and trying to find his purpose, Jesus, or Peter did not ask Jesus for a promise. He didn't say, Lord, promise me I won't sink and then I'll come. Lord, promise me everything will be okay and then I'll make a move. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me and I'll come. He didn't ask for a guarantee. All he wanted was the opportunity to walk with Jesus. There's a profound truth there for all of us that that spend so much time looking for our purpose. Jesus is still looking for people who will get out of the boat. I've put a couple of ways over the last couple of weeks in, in terms of what the boat is. I mean, what is it? Because put yourself in Peter's place for me. I mean, you have to have some insight into what Jesus is doing. The Lord is passing by. He understands, wait a minute, this is a divine moment here. He's invited into it to go on the adventure of his life. But at the same time, he's scared to death. What do you choose? Do you choose the water or the boat? Because the boat is safe and secure and comfortable. I mean, can we be honest? How many of us just go, I'm just going to stay right here in this boat? (laughs) Now, for for us, our boat represents safety or security, anything that that provides that for us, apart from God himself. Whatever we put our trust in, especially when life gets a little stormy, your boat is whatever keeps you comfortable, that you you don't want to give up, even if it's keeping you from joining Jesus on the waves. Jesus, I would love to put my faith in you and make you the one thing, but man, if I have another drink, I'll stop worrying. Oh, Jesus, I would love to make you my one thing, but it's too late. I've already set my eyes upon this man. Jesus, I would love to make you my one thing, but I can't stop looking at this stuff on the Internet. I don't know what your boat is, where you run to for that sense of, if I just look at this, taste this, drink this, smoke this, touch this, hold this, gaze upon this, it will provide me comfort. Your boat's whatever pulls you away from the high adventure of extreme discipleship. But, but the truth is the water is rough. I mean, I get it. The waters are high. The wind is strong. There is a storm out there. And if you get out of the boat, I don't know what you've been told, but if you get out of the boat, whatever that boat might be, their truth is there is a good chance you might sink. Like I would be lying to you to tell you that you might not sink. But there's another math equation at work here. If you don't get out of the boat, here's the math on that, there is a guaranteed certainty that you will never walk on water. It is an an immutable law of nature. Because if you wanna walk on water, you're going to have to get out of the boat and fear is what's keeping you in it. There's something, right? There's something inside of us that tells us there's gotta be more than just sitting in this boat. Building up a 401k, and kind of killing off life. There's something inside of you that wants to walk on water. There's something inside of you that wants to leave the comfort of routine existence and abandon yourself to this God that might call you to greatness. So what's your boat? Ah, why risk it? I only got 20 years left. Well, I mean... Do you, want to, do you want to grow? One of the profound questions in life is, do you want to change? Because this is the way of true faith. This is the way change happens. It's the alternative to boredom and stagnation. It causes That causes people to wither and die. Doing this, letting go, getting out of whatever this boat is that you've hung to and clung to for safety, and moving out onto the water of uncertainty with Christ, that's part of discovering and obeying your calling. You have a call on your life. And fear keeps you from actually doing what you were created to do long before the foundations of the earth were made. Now there's a lot of good reasons to get out of the boat. But there's one reason that trumps all of them. It's actually pretty cool to think about it this way. Because the water is where Jesus is. The water is where Jesus is. It may be dark and wet and dangerous, but understand, Jesus is not in the boat. The main reason Peter got out of the boat was not to show off. The main reason Peter got out of the boat is he wanted to be where Jesus was because he understood it. It became his one thing. And so Matthew, he, he, he continues in his story. He remembers it, it going like this. Come, uh, Jesus said. And Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came towards Jesus. And so I, I, I wrote to you in this week's teaser... Um, I always wonder, is anybody read these things? I I wrote to you in this week's teaser, this story, this this particular story, and all kinds of medical research now, a lot of it, I'm going to share it with you in a minute. uh, Medical research on fear proves one powerful principle. This is an actual definitive action step you can take in your life to get out of the boat, to release yourself from fear, a very practical way to overcome it, and it turns out that Nike figured it out in an ad campaign 20 years ago. Just do it. Now let me explain. Fear paralyzes us. I told you that story. A couple of you sent me some funny stuff on it. Of when I was in England, and I walked out onto St. Paul's Cathedral and walked out in my height thing and holding the thing. I mean, I literally felt paralyzed by my fear of heights. I did not want to move. Like the best case scenario was they slapped a feeding tube and catheter on me and I would have just stayed right there and withered and died. I mean, right? That's what fear does. Let me show you something about how to overcome that. Again, Ed Hollowell, Christian guy, professor at Harvard. This is what he learned on his study of fear. He said, the most obvious and effective approach to reducing worry, he believes, is unfortunately the most underused action. Worry is at its most pernicious when it is a substitute for action. That was one of the questions earlier, remember? The American Psychological Association published a book a few years ago, and it summarized all of the research that's been done in recent years on self-esteem. They looked at a basic paradox, and I do a lot of counseling, and this is a true paradox. It's so interesting to me, yet I struggle with it in my own life, if I'm honest. Why are there so many people lacking self-esteem who have so many reasons to have high esteem? They've accomplished many things, they're gifted, attractive, well-liked, but they struggle with self-worth. Even people who have accomplished a great deal and are apparently successful are often prone to feelings of self-doubt and inadequacy. But not only that, many people who receive much affirmation and admiration from significant others tend to disbelieve it and wrestle with self-esteem all the same. All research is so good. All research, all, suggests that self-esteem largely boils down to one issue. When you face a difficult situation, do you approach it, take action, and face it head-on? Do you get out of the boat, or do you avoid it, wimp out, and run and hide? If you take action, you get a surge of delight. Think of Peter, even if things don't turn out perfectly. Now, there's a lot left in this story for me to share with you. I really did intend to share it with you. Maybe I'll come back to it. This is obviously a a profound story. There's a lot left in the story to teach on. Uh, Peter, when he got out of the boat, he's doing, I mean, he's walking on water. But he took his eyes off of Jesus for a minute and lowered them and he began to focus on the storm that was all around him. I do that. And, And when he did, He sank. There's a lesson there too for all of us that would get out of the boat because here's what the scripture says. It says immediately, immediately, Jesus stretches out his hand and catches him because Jesus catches water walkers even when fear gets the best of them. This is not a story of failure. I've said this many times. This is not a story of failure. To this day, Peter is the only human being to ever walk on water. There's also a lesson here on, on where to keep your eyes in the midst of a storm. There are lessons here about what happens when we give in to our fears and we set our gaze upon our, the waves and not on the one who called us out of the water. There's much here. There's, there's much here about at the end of the story about Jesus actually getting back in the boat with them and they all real, realizing he is the great I am. But I want to end on a more personal note this morning. Um, it 's been if you if you know some of you are close with my family, it has been a crazy couple of months for the Eisman family man it's been one of those things where it's like, man, the wind is just constantly in, in our face. I mean, like anything that can happen will happen, deer jumping in front of cars, these struggles with you know health struggles, all kinds of stuff um, it's just been one of those one of those storm seasons, and uh, it's been an especially crazy twenty four hours for us um, and so uh last night during Caroline's 15th birthday party, we had about 15 kids at the house, we got the call that Joan's father had passed away. And so many of you um, know, I had been sharing that story with many of you, and so uh, it's a very weird dynamic. We had been up there over the last 24 hours and had just come home. In fact, Joan really struggled with coming home, but she just sensed she should come home, and, and we threw this party and then we couldn't tell Caroline. All the kids were there. And So it was a weird dynamic. My sister came over and helped us, and we're just kind of sitting in the Kitchen, waiting to break Caroline's heart. In a sense, she was very, very close with her grandfather, and it, it was a long night. I haven't gotten a lot of sleep. Um, you know, she she cried real tears about like, uh, you know, what about my wedding and stuff like that, which I won't get into. Um, but uh, my father-in-law was a man speaking about guys that get out of boats and don't really. Don't really live lives of fear. He he had no fear about his death. I, I spoke to him two times a week over the last bunch of months. He said to me, "John, it's time for me to go, and I can't wait." He is a man whose stubborn persistence in following Jesus, and I have to tell you guys, making sure as much as I hated him for it at the moment, making sure that his daughter married someone who followed Jesus too, it changed a lot of things. Without my father-in-law's trust and confidence in the great I am who walks by and calls us into divine moments, who creates purpose and calling, I would not be standing in front of you today. I would have never found my purpose or my calling. I never would have gotten out of my boat. I have to tell you, if I have ever said or done anything for any of you that has moved you in the direction of Jesus or towards repentance or the kingdom of God, you actually owe a small debt of gratitude to this man. If he had not, if it had not been for his radical and sometimes ridiculous love of Jesus, if, if, he, if he had not been so completely insistent on Jesus all the time, well, uh, it's an example that echoes will echo in our home for generations as we comforted each other last night. The kids were saying, all Grandpa wants is for us to follow Jesus. That's all he wants. And so it'll echo in our family, and it'll, I think it'll echo in our church. And and here's what's interesting. My my father-in-law, he didn't care about being cool. He was a a very smart man. Um, he, He had a brilliant career. He went to a military academy. But he never tried to be cool or liked or socially acceptable. He didn't care about those things. He just cared about Jesus like ridiculously much. He didn't worry about fear of failure. He didn't worry how other people judged him. He stuck to some of his old school Christian ways he just didn't care. He had convictions of what it looked like to follow Jesus, and he didn't care, even if his smart son-in-law told him they were silly, he didn't care. When he retired, he could have stayed in the boat of his retirement, but he, he, he got out of the boat and he went on to pastor a bunch of small churches throughout Pennsylvania for the last 20 years in his retirement. He gave his life away to all kinds of people. Was he perfect? No, no, he would tell you. There was lots of things he messed up. Do I want to be like him in many areas in my life? Yeah, I really do. And so um, it's funny, if you've gone to a lunch with a pastor, I've told you my story. Uh, so when I started dating my wife, my wife grew up in this very conservative Christian household, no drinking, no dancing, no smoking, you know, no, no TV, no music, you know, like the whole thing, no playing cards. And, and it was kind of the Christianity my father-in-law had been reared in. And so, you know, in walks Mr. Cool. And uh, I'm thinking I'm kind of the nerdy good guy. And it turns out in, in, in Carl Berg's eye, I'm a bad boy. And uh, Joni likes bad boys, what can I tell you? And so, <laughs> and so we started going out. And uh, you know, I couldn't understand this because I didn't understand Christianity at all. In my mind, I wasn't Jewish, I had to be a Christian. That was kind of my deep theology at the moment. And, uh, and he just said, he would tell her, you, I don't want you going out with him, he's not a Christian. This is very important for your life, don't go out with him. But you know, she went out with me nonetheless. And uh, I remember we were at Seaside Heights one time, we were on a date, and we were using a payphone. and kids, don't listen to this, this is bad. Bad, I tell you, bad. But she was calling home going, oh yeah, I'm here with a friend, no, I don't know what happened to that guy, I haven't seen him in a while. And and so Carl and I's relationship, you know, it was strained, uh, but because of his, because he didn't give a crud about what other people thought, he only cared about Christ and his family, he just clung to that man, and uh, there was something about it. God used it to bring me towards Christ in radical ways. And so Friday night we were up there. I told you I've been spending all kinds of time with him. I, I got to bring him to the church. He wanted to see the improvements. I walked him through a couple of weeks ago. And he was just grinning from ear to ear. He was just so excited about what God had done with his family and God, how God had honored his legacy. And so as I was in his room last night, the night before, I, he, was, he, was, he was dying. And I went up and I kissed him and I said, Dad, I want you to know I love you. Carl's not the kind of guy that would say, I love you. He's kind of a stiff guy. He looked up at me and said, John, I love you. (sighs) So I walked out. He called me back, and he said, hey, John, I love you. And so I tell you all that. Because we all have days like this. Like, I'm going through that. It's not my dad. My wife is really hurting right now. It just happened late last night. But these moments bring about some clarity in your mind. And so I just wanted to share this with you relative to to this story. Because right now life seems very simple in some ways and frustratingly short. And so we're pretty much done with a series on fear. We're almost at the end of it. But I'm reminded once again of the danger of succumbing to it. Worrying about what other people think of you and, and worrying about what it would look like to follow Jesus. And instead just living your life pinned into a rowboat. Life is too short. You've been given great gifts. You're the brightest and the best. And the Lord is passing by. I just want to encourage you to get out of the boat. I don't know what it is. I mean, I know what mine is. I don't know what your calling is, but I can guess, I can guess it has something to do with being an agent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joan's dad was an agent of his king. And so your call likely begins in your home or with your family, in your close relationship, it extends out into this church, our, our, your office, our town. But please understand, time is short. Keep asking God, Lord, what is the call? What do you have for me? Where, what are you calling me from? Lord, would you set me free from fear so I could follow? Where, where could you, I mean, where could you forgive where it's not required? Where could could you love where it's unnecessary? Where could you redeem something that, that someone else lost, even though it might cost you something? Who do you need to call? Where do you need to go? To whom should you ask forgiveness? And to whose darkness can you bring light? I know it'll be awkward. I know you don't know what they might say. I know you don't know how it's going to turn out. You might fail. You might sink. But Jesus is there. And he'll catch you. Because he's out on the water. And so, man, you guys can come up. I just close with this. Because this guy didn't care what I thought about him. He didn't care that I thought he was co- I was cooler than he was. He didn't care that I thought his some of his legalism was over the top. In fact, we, had a, we were sitting around trying to kill those two hours off last night in the kitchen with all these girls around trying to pretend like everything was all right. So Joan and I opened a bottle of wine and, and I said, well, right now Carl has been for, set free from his legalism, so to Carl, and we, <laughs> and we had a toast. Church, the great I am is passing by You're seconds away from a a divine moment. And if you want to walk on water, you're going to have to get out of the boat. And so, Lord, come. Give us a sense and a taste of how big you are, how big God is, how much you're for us. Lord, show us where we've invested in finite things and made them infinite. Tear all of those things down, Lord God, and make Jesus large in our eyes and call us out and help us to come. In Jesus' name we pray.